Get your Bibles or your apps, turn or tap to Mark chapter 3 today. One of the reasons I love Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus is for passages like this one that give us a glimpse of the real Jesus. Maybe we would say the raw Jesus compared to some of the other three gospel accounts. We might say, as we used to in the 90s, that Jesus is just in your face. Depending on what you've been taught to believe about Jesus or what images come to mind when we reflect on this man who we are trying to follow and know, we might struggle at times with some of Mark's descriptions. I'm going to pick up, one, pick up and press on one little line and a couple of words within this story as we again walk slowly through this journey, which I think is a right pace and will move us through the coming year. Here's one of these times. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. That's the ESV. The NIV says Jesus was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. There's no getting around or softening these terms. And Mark seems to show us the emotional side of Jesus, the humanity side of Jesus, maybe a little bit more than we see from the other gospel writers. Orgeis is the Greek word for anger used here. And it's not merely displeasure or frustration. It cannot be translated softer than anger. But often it is translated stronger. It is at various times, many times throughout the New Testament or the Second Testament, it is translated as indignation, as wrath. We might even more accurately phrase this line, Jesus looked around and was furious with them. The word sulopeo means grieved, translated rightly grieved, but it also has a deep pain to it. It is in a very emotionally rich and deep word. Jesus was pained and distraught at the hardness of heart, at the stubborn hearts. Jesus, angry and grieved. And everyone present that day knew it. They felt that from him. I think this is refreshing. This isn't the flannel graph Jesus that some of us grew up with. This isn't the sad-eyed flowing locks Jesus giving the limp peace sign. This isn't the the, the Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, patiently waiting to see if you'll open the door. This is not that Jesus. This is angry Jesus. And I think that's refreshing. And we see the richness and the balance that is in the life of our Lord. He is furious at how little grace and mercy is being displayed by those claiming to be God's people. These were the most highly esteemed The religious elites of the day, these were the priests. If they didn't even actually fill the role of priests as Pharisees, they were the ones that meant to display who God was and mediate between people and God. These were the pastors of their day. How had they so significantly misinterpreted or misunderstood the heart of God? Last week we explored the Sabbath as almost like a case study 
of failing to understand the heart of God. Something that was meant to be a gift and a blessing had become a duty and a burden upon God's people. Jesus declared at the end of Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So that lesson clearly hasn't sunk in at this point. In the very next chapter, we see this account. It's another Sabbath day. And once again, Jesus is in the crosshairs of the Pharisees and the religious elite. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. That was his custom to do. And a man was there with a withered hand, some form of deformity that would have made him unable to probably work and provide for himself and his family if he had one. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him because it was the Sabbath. And if he did, they were going to accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, the deformed hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. The simplest of questions, anticipating what would have been the obvious answer, Jesus may have well have asked them, is God loving or not? And they were silent. It seems that his silence, that their silence is what kindled his anger. It's what at least revealed their hardness of heart. Now, as we explore Jesus in his full humanity and emotion and his anger in this moment, this is description. I bring us back to a very important hermeneutical principle Hermeneutics, how you draw out and read and study a text. In this case, Scripture. And you'll hear me say this often. We need to understand what is description in the Bible. What happened or what was happening amongst a people at a time, a narrative or an account. And then what is prescription? What is meant to be prescribed for all peoples everywhere or for all peoples who are following Jesus? We have no follow-up account. Sometimes we do in the Scriptures when an event happens or Jesus teaches and then his disciples go with him by themselves and say, Jesus, can you explain that further for us? And even then we have to then parse out, is that, this, is that prescription that he gives to them also for us for all time? In this case, we don't have that. We don't have Jesus with his disciples later, at least we're not told, where he says to them, so you too be angry when you see the hardness of heart when you see that there's an opportunity to do good from those who have the ability and the resources to do good and they resist and they fail, you too be angry. We don't have that. That would be a prescription that I think rightly we would say as followers of Jesus, we must follow. We don't have that. We have description only. But simply because we have description does not mean that there are not at least observations and perhaps applications as we are striving to become more and more like Jesus, following his ways to live as he did. A couple of observations. It's clear that anger is not a sin. Jesus is clearly angry here. There is no way around it. The scriptures declare Jesus as sinless. Specifically, Hebrews 4.15 
For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, is yet without sin. I think that's such an encouraging verse. Jesus walked in humanity, knowing what it was to be tempted into sin, but walked sinless, trusting the Holy Spirit every step of the way. So we see Jesus angry. We know he is sinless. I think we can imagine that he was tempted at times with this anger, with this emotion to walk into sin. He did not. He contained that flame. He entrusted himself again to the Holy Spirit and ultimately to the judgment of God himself. Was he tempted here to retaliate, to make a point, to step over, to hurt, whether with his words or in some form of retribution? We're not told that either. But I think we can read some of, with the, with the deep emotion of Jesus, that he was at least tempted to cross over a line that would have been not having anger under control. And he does not. Jesus is righteous. He does what is right at every moment, at all, the t- all times. And he is angry. I know not everyone is comfortable with the phrase righteous anger. And that's why I put a question mark if you'll I know most of you aren't tracking the sermon titles, but if you do see it, and it's online, we don't have bulletins in these field church days, I put a question mark at the end of righteous anger. Let's wade in a little bit further. And if you're looking for me to give you a black or white yes or no answer, you're going to be disappointed. So I thought I would just put that out there for you at the beginning. We are not prescribed to be angry. We cannot find that in the scriptures. In fact, Scripture more often warns against anger, its danger. It tells us instead to put away anger, to put away our wrath. We are warned. We are also never told that anger is a sin, that anger is wrong. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who is one that does say, put away anger, put away wrath, deal with it. He also says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry, the very same word that we see in Mark, or gay, and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Now, he may not be prescribing anger here. He may simply be saying, as the reality of of who we are as emotional beings, anger will come, and with that anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. I preached on this fairly extensively when I preached through Ephesians. So our set leads into our second observation. If anger is not a sin, but for us to follow the ways of Jesus, who himself was angry at unrighteousness, anger must not consume us. It must not dwell within us. That's what this phrase, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This does not mean, although I think it might be a healthy practice, that If you're angry with someone and have that, before the day is over, try to work out reconciliation. I think that's probably a good practice, but the the, the mean what what Paul meant primarily was do not let anger dwell. Do not let it root in us. Probably day after day. Do not let it fester. Do not let it grow. It is dangerous because in doing so, you give opportunity to our enemy. You actually give him place into our life. And that can be very spiritually entrapping. 
I preached through that bondage and strongholds and what that could be to give place, invitation to the enemy into our lives. And I believe that is still recorded on our website if you want to press deeper into that concept. If we look at the very next passage that happens in Mark, verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3, you'll see more of the same from Jesus. You'll see him once again ministering amongst the needy people, the hurting people, the sick people. And I think our author here wants to contrast this anger against the religious elites and then show us anger in control. If you want a test at how you are doing with anger, and I, I, am, I am preaching this from the position that we all struggle with anger, and that's a spectrum. If you don't, either praise God for the work that he's done in your life, but I would also invite you to ask why you are not angry at injustices that we see in our world. Are we not seen as Jesus saw? But I'm preaching from the assumption that most of us struggle to control the anger. And if you need a test, how are you when needy people interrupt your schedule and your day? How well do you do? Maybe just generally that's a good test, but especially if we have been recently triggered by some, some event or something that we've either seen or experienced that has triggered anger. Even if we would use the term righteous anger, we see someone hurt, whether through action or through words. Maybe it's out there or maybe it's more personal. We see someone with opportunity to help, power and privilege and ability and resources who does not help. Whether that's on social media or your news feed or just in daily interactions, you're triggered to a point, right? Something stirs, you're angry. You have not yet sinned in that anger. Maybe there's no opportunity. You haven't said anything. You're just now dwelling a little bit with that root of anger. Maybe you're conscious of needing to put that away to deal with it. Maybe you're not. How do you do later on when someone interrupts your schedule, especially a needy person. Just as a personal example, my kids have some ability, some, to not show perfect love to one another or to others. And often, my response to them does not fit that offense. Because a triggered anger within me has been undealt with and wrongly comes out. And not always is that a source of righteous anger. I just want to assume that some of you can relate to this experience. So it may well be wise for us to avoid these triggering events if we know what they are. If they're on social media, if they're on certain news channels, if they're in certain places or with certain peoples, but I don't think that can be the only response to distance, to remove, to escape. Because if these are sources of what we would say righteous anger, or again, use whatever phrase, Jesus-like anger, then to, to never be exposed or experience them would be to withdraw from the mission of Jesus. Would mean we can't follow him into these places of hurt, pain, and need. So, so while it may be wise to understand our, our propensity, our trigger points to simply remove and isolate in all places and be able to say, 
Well, no, I never get angry. I would ask, are you on the front lines with Jesus? Because there's things that deeply angered him. We need to grow deeply in humility. A long journey to see the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit more and more be the response and the reflex that comes out from us, even in times of being triggered. You know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. And that last one, self-control. I would say with anger, at injustices, at pain, at hurt, the fruit of the Spirit can be present. And it was for Jesus. He ministered to sick and needy and hurting people for the remainder, I believe, of that same day after just having been incensed, furious at what he was seeing for the neglect to show mercy and compassion to this man with a deformity for those that had ability. Not saying that they had the ability to heal miraculously as he did, but they were more concerned with their religious regulations than showing compassion to someone who was hurting. They missed completely the heart of God. Leads me into observation number three. We can't make excuses for anger. Well, Jesus was angry, so am I. There's really one thing that makes Jesus angry here. I'm going to parse it out a little bit and give you four because I think we can resonate. But what's on your list? I'm guessing your list is longer than four. Mine is. There's things that should never even be on our list. How a 23-year-old throws, hits, catches, or kicks a ball should not determine my attitude and my emotion. When my six-month-old puppy acts like a six-month-old puppy, when my six-year-old son acts like a six-year-old son, when that new driver ahead of me acts like a new driver. There's things that should never be on our list, and we cannot justify our anger. We should be asking questions about it. So don't just assume that your every anger is, oh, it's righteous. We must deeply have introspection The list of things that angered Jesus was short. I think maybe just one. But if I parse it out, take note. First, what triggers, at least in the flow of the scripture text here, is is silence at the religious leaders. Their silence at a question that should have had one answer. Why would that have triggered? I think you've seen the heart in this, but what did he say? Is it, is, it, is it on the Sabbath or really any day? Is it right to do good or harm? Is it right to heal or kill? There's a clear answer. They are silent, revealing their hardness of heart. They had opportunity to speak truth and they were silent. Men in power. So that's one. If we're parsing The hardness of heart is probably the core of all of this. It's the expression of where these others are. They are not showing humility or compassion. They're probably all rooted in that. So so would be the third, if we're parsing the anger trigger for Jesus. Inaction. Someone is hurting and hindered. This man likely would not have been able to work or care for his family in in a time that almost demanded health and ability 
especially for young men, if we can assume maybe he was a young man. They see an opportunity to help. They had the resources to do so, and they choose to do nothing. And I'm guessing that posture was more consistent than just on the Sabbath day. Inaction, so silence, hardness of heart, inaction, and hypocrisy. So they're all kind of woven together. That's why I say I'm parsing them out because it may just be the one heart that Jesus is so angered at. Hypocrisy, those that claimed to be the ones who knew God most are representing him least. The ones who should have walked in compassion, mercy, grace, and healing are more interested in their religious appearances, how they look to others and maintaining their power and their control. The Pharisees then double down on their hypocrisy. There's one little line in there that's easy to just skim over because we don't have context for it. It says they went and worked with the Herodians to see how they could destroy Jesus. The Herodians were likely a small group of Jews who had ingratiated themselves with King Herod and the Roman Empire. Hey, it's easy... It's easier just to get in line. I mean, I'm tired of the persecution. So we'll, be, we'll, be, vote, we'll, we'll vote for you, Herod. We'll, we'll be with you. What can we do for you? And they were considered outcasts and traitors by so many amongst the Jews, especially the Orthodox Pharisees. How dare you? We have one God and one God alone, and you are crossing that line to be sympathetic to King Herod. Here, they throw that all out the window to work with them. So the Herodians clearly had some form of connection or power with Herod and maybe with their help, we can destroy Jesus. And we see that storyline kind of continue all the way through the account. It's ultimately how they got it done. So hypocrisy, they just doubled down on. Certainly that's a big part of what kindled Jesus's anger. In, in a long, hard chapter, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees primarily for their hypocrisy. And it's hard to read that without also reading in this same kind of emotion, this same kind of anger. I think Jesus' anger is heightened because these are men in power with influence, privilege, and ability. They could have offered help in so many ways, but they refused. Certainly not much has changed in our world today. People in power with privilege and influence and ability and resources continue to neglect and overlook those in need who are hurting and marginalized most. And before we point fingers and post on social media, are we willing to take a long look in the mirror? Are we so different than the Pharisees in Jesus' day? Now, when I say we, I am personalizing. I'm not asking you to. If you want to say we, the capital C church, God's people in the West, have we not been more concerned with correct doctrine than we have in helping the hurting? I have. And Lord, forgive me. Ironically, I think our world today is more righteously angry toward the church than the church is with itself. When we pray for revival, and whenever you hear that or wherever you see that, I hope we're praying for the people of God, the followers of Jesus. That's where revival begins. I think we should be angry at times. This is my conclusion. I'm not giving it to you. It's not prescribed in that way. When I look at Jesus and I watch him closely, 
and I study his life, I think we should be angry at times. But we must not forget the instructions throughout the rest of scriptures, especially the Apostle James who says we must be slow to anger, slow to speak. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Careful. We're often the opposite, aren't we? Slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to become angry and reactive. But even in that warning, the Apostle James is not saying do not be angry ever. He's saying slow, slow. Let it, if it's there, let it be kindled. Don't let it dwell. Keep it contained. Because your anger will not bring about a righteous life. Maybe if we could flip that, a righteous life may allow us to be angry at the right things controlled. Whereas we turn in the next moment to those that are in need, we can minister with compassion, grace, mercy, and healing. Whether it's our children, those in line in front of us that we don't even know, our next door neighbors, our coworkers, or even towards those in positions of power. So a couple of quick practices. For me, are we willing to take a look in the mirror? Because when I check my anger and want to even justify it as righteous, I need to say to the Lord, how often have I had opportunity to give help and I have rejected that, failed to see it or failed to execute it? And when I start to see, when God in his grace starts to reveal the ways that I have failed to extend his kingdom in the ways he would have, that usually slows my anger toward others. It gives me the right perspective. Remember that James 4.17 also says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So Lord, convict us where we have those opportunities. Help us see our own hypocrisy to slow our anger. Jesus always does what is right. The definition of righteousness so his anger, anger is righteous. Another thing that might slow our anger is to remember that Jesus doesn't do everything. I think part of our anger can be because we're, there's so much injustice, it's so widespread, there's so much hurt and need that we don't know what to do with that. We don't even have a capacity to see it, let alone be burdened by it all, and so it can be overwhelming. We don't have any right outlet for it, so it's just crushing at times. I know I feel that. Be, be reminded that Jesus didn't do everything. I'll pick a few. He did not end world hunger or poverty. He did not come to overthrow evil governments or to reform government. He did not personally adopt orphans or foster children. He did not work toward climate control. Okay, I threw that one out there at the end. Would he have been concerned by all of them? I think so. Maybe not the climate piece. Maybe that wasn't quite on the radar yet. But let's be reminded that Jesus doesn't do everything. He has a mission and has a focus. This has helped me as I reflect on my anger where I do believe it is righteous at times. What has he called me to do? What has he given me either equipping or opportunity to see and to make a difference for? 
Not that the other things aren't deeply important to the heart of God, not to be dismissive, but to say, Lord, I know I'm limited in capacity and I see this one and I have opportunity here. Sometimes that's in a moment right now, more, more, well, I'm speaking more of a broad perspective of kind of calling and sense of I can make a difference here, maybe, maybe minor, but I know I can right here. I think I can, I'm willing. All of these other injustices as I see them, these hurts, these pains, Lord, thank you that you care deeply. You, nothing is too big for you. And you have sent your people and called your people into those specific expressions. I can then give over that anger to, to him and not be burdened by the, the broad scope of it. Who are these in our very midst, if we ask? If you're uncertain of that, of that call to, to alleviate some form of hurt, abuse, or injustice, first we need to ask God that we would see them that we would see with your eyes so that we can respond with your heart. That an, an angry response is the heart of Jesus. We see it. But oh Lord, help us be slow. We know our weakness and our capacity. We are not Jesus. We are hoping to come more like him. Help us, Jesus, become more like you. And if you're uncertain of what that is, ask him today. Maybe he will clarify that. And a response will be, okay, Lord, if I now see, what would you have me do? How can I represent you? That the Holy Spirit would change in us the reflex that instead of withdrawing or making excuses or being blind or not seeing, how often do we say this? I see it, but I can't do anything to make a difference. Now, we might not be able to change it in a moment as Jesus did with this man, but to believe that we can't do anything, that he hasn't positioned us for something is also wrong. Lord, convict us and lead us that we can make a difference. Look what, look what he does with this man with a deformity. He sees him, he invites him, he elevates him, stand up and gives him voice and then changes the trajectory of his life. And through that, others had an opportunity to change through one thing with one person. The smallest things may have a multiplication effect as we seek to extend the kingdom of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, convict us. Help us to reflect and analyze our anger. Lord, help us put away our anger and wrath that is not righteous, or even if the source of it is righteous, that we have taken control of and then allowed that flame to be out of control. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me. You've convicted me this week. I'm angry at my anger at how quick it is to be triggered. Some, yes, in righteous ways and then much not. Lord, especially as we all walk with a deep amount of pressure and weight through a long year of a pandemic, we don't thank you for the persecution, but we recognize hardship. And we then, with greater effort, Lord, we come to you and say, we need you deeply. Jesus, we need your heart. We need to be renewed and restored. Day by day, help us to put off the acts and the works of the flesh and put on your Holy Spirit and the fruit of your righteousness. Let us deeply analyze 
with your help, Lord, that we would be righteously angry to the point of action, action that works toward the same things you do, healing, wholeness, justice, mercy, compassion, grace, deliverance, and love. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Amen.